All right. Gospel of Mark, tonight we are in chapter 8, verse 22. We'll go right through the first verse of chapter 9. Tonight's lesson is a good example of why sometimes the chapter and verse divisions can be misleading. Because you might like read to the end of a chapter and then you go like, that's the end of an idea, and then you think about it. And oftentimes, particularly, the, first of all, the chapters and verses weren't there when the writers wrote them. And so they often intended it to just keep on rolling and building one idea upon another. Tonight we're going to see how that works. Remember, last week's lesson was called Ears to Hear. Because Jesus had been bringing the gospel message, but the Pharisees kind of had the attitude of, our minds made up, don't confuse us with the facts. You ever like, do, meet somebody who's like that, right? Kind of like, no sense arguing with them, because even if you proved it to them, showed a picture of it on the wall, they think it's some different way. And the Pharisees had decided Jesus couldn't be to the, the uh, Messiah because he didn't do things the way they had imagined the Messiah would do them when he came. Okay? So Jesus heals a deaf man, and then uses that as an illustration to say, just like the deaf guy, <laughs> the Pharisees aren't hearing what I have to say. Tonight's lesson we call eyes to see, because he's going to use a miracle of healing a blind man as an illustration of the disciples don't yet see what he's trying to get them to see. What is it that Jesus is trying to get the disciples to see? Okay, that's true. Good. Yep. Right. That he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But it really had three levels. And the first level was that, that he was the one that had been promised in the Old Testament. And he had done certain things that it was foretold the Messiah would do. And he kept pointing to those and saying, I'm the one. But there were a couple of other factors that he was trying to gently lead them through. All Jews believed in a Messiah in Jesus' day. However, none of them believed in a suffering Messiah, including the disciples, or a Messiah that was in fact God in human flesh. They believed in a Messiah, but they believed he would be just another great deliverer sent from God, just a human being. And that he would do things um, that only God could do, but that's only because God enabled him for the purpose of being Messiah. Jesus was trying to bring the disciples along to understand that he was indeed the Messiah. Messiah means deliverer. Uh, his name also meant Messiah, didn't it? What, what was his name? Jesus. And what's the other one? You were saying it's actually, you know that Jesus is your name? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah and that's, what, that's Jesus. Jesus is an Americanized English version of Yeshua, Jesus, okay? And it means deliverer. 
Savior. Remember, uh, his parents were told, you will name him Jesus for, what's the next line? He will save his people from their sins. In other words, we're going to call him the Savior because that's what he came to do. Okay? So the disciples were pretty well embracing the idea that he was the Messiah because they wouldn't have left their homes and businesses and all that if they didn't believe that. But these other two ideas were a little bit more difficult for them to get their hearts around. And Jesus was trying to gently show them this. And they were sort of like blind men. They didn't yet see the whole picture. Tonight's lesson will uh, point that out. The Pharisees, Herod, and even the crowds were spiritually deafened to the point where they couldn't hear the truth about Jesus' identity. But the disciples themselves were not seeing the whole picture clearly either. This lesson will uh, help them. First, a troubling condition. So Jesus and the disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. They believed that if he touched him, the man would be healed. Why did they believe that? Okay, what did we just... Go back to what I was just talking about. Why did they believe that if Jesus touched this man, he would be healed? They believed he was the Messiah, right? They had come to believe that he's got to be the Messiah. So if the Messiah lays his hands on you, you're going to be healed. So they bring him to Jesus. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. I think this is because... He wanted to use the man's healing to teach something to his disciples. So he was taking the man aside. Of course, the disciples followed him. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Now, why did Jesus do that? Nobody knows. You're right when you're sitting there going, huh, should I know the answer to that question? Nobody knows, except for maybe to say that um, by his word, by what comes out of his mouth, comes healing, but we don't know for sure. He spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, and Jesus asked, do you see anything? Now this is curious because Jesus is going to heal this man, and it's awesome, but He's going to heal him in a really strange way because he's trying to teach a lesson. See if you can pick up on the lesson. The man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Okay? Now most of you can cooperate with this lesson. Take your glasses off. Okay? Don't I look a lot more handsome up here? (laughs) Trees walking. Yeah. Now, that's not what you would expect, would it? Because if Jesus heals somebody, I'd expect 20-20 vision. I don't know about you, right? Okay. That's certainly a lot better than being blind. But the guy still doesn't see all that well. Again, are you getting the lesson? The disciples see that Jesus is the Messiah. 
They don't yet see that the Messiah has to suffer or that the Messiah is himself God in human flesh. They see it, but kind of like Jesus is a tree walking around. Okay. Once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Doesn't give up on the guy. He doesn't say, well, that's as good as I can do for you. No. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, do you understand? Jesus could have healed this man instantaneously. He could have healed him without touching him, without spitting on his eyes, any of that. So all of that was to obviously make a point. So Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Again, this lesson was for who? The disciples, right. That's why he called him aside. And that's why he said, don't, don't just go back to the village and tell everybody what we did out here. Just to go home, enjoy your healing. Having opened the ears of a deaf man in last week's lesson, Jesus now touches and heals a blind man. The message of the earlier miracle was likely directed toward the spiritually deaf, to use a metaphor. The large crowds of people who pursued Jews, Jesus only for healings and deliverances and for other signs and wonders. This time the message goes to his own disciples. They've heard what he's saying and caught the vision of his mission's call, but they don't see the whole picture. I want you to think about how your clarity regarding who Jesus is has developed over the years. Okay? You first came to Christ, and you go, wow, wow, that's amazing. Jesus is now part of my life. This changes everything. Okay? But just exactly how does it change everything, and what does he want to change in you, and where is all this heading, and all those questions? Very hazy, right? You walk with the Lord a while, and it starts opening up, right? If you're like me, you still don't understand it all. And sometimes you go like, I wonder what God's up to. But a lot of the time, you see God moving and working in your life, and you've been walking with Him long enough that you see, you know, that's God, because that's just like Him, the way He works in my life. Even, by the way, if it's something really difficult and hard. Okay? I mean, because when you walk with Jesus, he doesn't just bring, like, really sweet things into your life. Sometimes he brings really hard and challenging things into your life. But you've seen how in the past, when he's done that, he never leaves you. And he uses those hard things to shape you and make you more. And then later you look back and go, had I not gone through that with Christ, I'd never be here where I am today. Okay? And it's like in stages, isn't it? It doesn't happen all at once. We grow. We develop. Our eyes are open. All right, so Jesus then is going to give his disciples a test. You ever remember like in school where they would sometimes have a midterm exam, right? Like it's like you've learned some of the important stuff and you're now going to go on to learn the rest of it that's built on the first, but it's not going to do you any good unless you can pass the test regarding the first stuff, the foundational information, right? 
And so Jesus is about to give that kind of little exam to his disciples. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you can imagine in your mind again the map of of uh, Palestine at the time of Christ. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, and up here is Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, where Jerusalem is down here. Up in Galilee is where most of the disciples came from, and that's where Jesus spent a lot of his time in ministry. Um, and uh, now he's been down in Jerusalem doing ministry, but he now takes the disciples way up, if you've got a map in your Bible, check it out, Caesarea Philippi is actually right at the outskirts of Israel, the very furthest northern part as you're entering into Gentile territory. And it happened to be an area where the Romans had military installations for the purpose of, remember how I said the Romans used to love to make uh, relationships with the local governing authorities and then just sit back and see you know, how you were doing and if everything was under control and people were paying their taxes and there was no revolt, then they just let you do their work. Uh, if there was, however, revolution of any kind, they quickly moved in and squashed it. Well, one of the ways they did that was they had these military installations right on the edge of the country. They were just waiting to see if there was going to be trouble. Okay. Well, Jesus, interestingly, takes the disciples way up there. It's like a perfect place for a retreat. Because, for one thing, there are too many Gentiles. The Pharisees aren't going to follow them up there. Okay? Because they'll be defiled by being around all those Gentiles and, and Romans. And so Jesus takes them up to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asks them, Who do people say that I am? There's the question. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? What's he up to? And what do we need to know about him? Well, they replied, there's a lot of varied public opinion regarding this. Some say you are John the Baptist. Remember, John had a pretty effective ministry out in the wilderness preaching a gospel of repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And uh, he had done his ministry, and when Christ came, he sort of passed the baton to Christ because his ministry was to prepare for the coming of the Christ. When the Christ was there, he passed it on. So it was like one ministry flowed into the next. And so some people were saying, well, this looks like John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, and still others, one of the prophets, Jesus says. But what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now Peter answered. Usually when Peter answers, he often has some really dumb answers. Okay, But know this, he's almost always only speaking because he's the spokesman. You know, some people are more vocal than others. Have you noticed that? All right. And he's a, he's a guy who's got his opinions, and he articulates them easily, and he speaks them sometimes without thinking first. But the truth is, other people among the disciples, they just count on him to do that. So don't ever think, well, what's wrong with that Peter? Well, what was wrong with Peter was wrong with the whole group. It's just that he was more outspoken about it. But in this case, he says something good. You are the Messiah, says he. 
Okay, that was the first step. I said that. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, they got it. They passed the first part of the the midterm exam. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. That's why he's here. So Jesus takes his disciples far to the north of Galilee for a bit of a midterm exam that will further reveal the status of his disciples' faith. Beginning with an exploration of public opinion, Jesus at last asks, Who do you say that I am? Proudly, Peter, on behalf of his brothers, replies, You are the Messiah, the Christ. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word for the promised deliverer. Christ is the Greek word for the same word. Jesus, yeah, you knew that wasn't his last name, right? That's his title. Christ means Messiah. Jesus affirms the response, but warns them not to tell anyone. Why? Because they didn't yet see the whole picture. They were like the blind man, weren't they? They were. They saw you're the Messiah, but that was just like you're just looked just like a tree walking around. Okay. So a reality check follows. Jesus then began to teach them. Okay, what happens after you take the midterm and you pass it? Yes. Yeah, go on to what's next, right? And it's not going to be easier than what was first. It's going to be built on what was first, and it's going to be harder and challenge you even further. That's what's about to happen. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man, Son of Man was an Old Testament title for the Messiah. It's okay. Jesus is going, well, you said I'm the Messiah. Let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do, why he's here. And why you need to understand this. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And, well, first of all, I don't think any Jew thought that. The Messiah will come and lead us in triumph. Suffering has to do with loss. (laughs) He's not going to lose anything. He's going to be a winner. But, says Jesus... The deliverance that the Messiah is going to bring, the Son of Man, is going to be accomplished through an act of sacrifice. This is not part of the prevailing thinking among Jews. This was not part of their thinking as disciples. How do I know that? Because of the argument that's about to ensue, led by a leader. And be rejected by the elders. They also thought that when the Messiah comes, he'll not only bring victory, not suffering and sacrifice, he will be embraced by all of the Jewish leadership and we will all together rise to significant power as we reestablish ourselves as a free state, Israel. That's, that was the thinking about what the Messiah would do. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'll be rejected by the elders the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and after three days rise again. He always adds the part about his resurrection, but I got a feeling that after he said the killed part, everything else just shut down, right? He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay? <laughs> He's facing No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, or something you don't understand. We do believe you're the Messiah, but the Messiah can't die. The Messiah can't suffer. The Messiah can't lose. You're here to win. You're here to lead us in victory. What is it that you don't understand, Jesus, about being the Messiah? Let us explain it to you. Now, I think Peter pulled him aside after consulting with his fellow disciples. I think they all said, somebody's got to talk to him. <laughs> this is craziness. So to blame it on Peter, I think, is, is unfair. He just had the biggest mouth. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, again, that's why I think that, because he didn't just turn to look at Peter, did he? He turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Okay? And again, why do you think he called Peter Satan? I mean, he chose him to be a disciple. Yeah, and what was Satan's work? Right, and what kind of Messiah? See, Peter wasn't trying to get him to say he wasn't the Messiah. He was trying to get him to say that the Messiah shouldn't suffer. And that's what, the, that's what Satan would love, wouldn't it? Because, listen, the Messiah can come and he can kick Rome out of Israel. That's not going to do us one bit of good because we're all going to die and go to hell because of our sin. We needed a Savior. <laughs> okay? But they didn't get that yet. They didn't get that that's why he was here. So he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God. What's the concern of God? To redeem mankind. That's exactly it. And they're not going to be redeemed without a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. <laughs> right? That's why the Messiah is here. That's the deliverance the Messiah has come to bring. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Yes, they knew it with all their hearts. Jesus, you are Israel's long-awaited Messiah. But that was like seeing a man like a tree walking. What exactly had the Christ come to earth to do? Why was he here? What was he about to do? And what would the future be like his followers? The Savior removes all doubt with this bold proclamation. The Son of Man must be rejected, must be killed. Did they get it now? No. <laughs> Peter, also on behalf of the others, confronts his Messiah, think how silly that is, and rejects his mission statement. Because... They had a mission statement for the Messiah, right? And it wasn't identical to Jesus' mission statement, was it? In fact, in many ways, it was in conflict with Jesus' mission statement. Jesus' mission statement was to come and give his life as a sacrifice to set people free from their sin. 
Their mission statement from the Messiah was for him to come and set them free from Roman rule and make their lives a lot more comfortable. And since they'd spend three years walking around with him, let them rule with him. Okay, They definitely believed he was the Messiah, but they were way off track. <laughs> this could be when it came to understanding what the Messiah was there to do. Now, by the way, they stayed pretty well blind regarding this right to the very end. <laughs> because when in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gets arrested, what do they do? They run for their lives, yeah. Because they're going like, wait a minute, I don't think this is part of our Messianic vision, right? <laughs> He's not supposed to get arrested. So a final clarification. Then he called the crowds to him, along with the disciples, and he said, Lesson. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. What does it mean to deny yourself? You just saw a good picture of it in Peter. Okay? It means abandon your vision of the way things ought to be <laughs> and embrace God's vision of what he intends to do in your life. That can be hard, can it? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. In other words, recognize, hey, I got news for you. Not only is suffering a part of the Father's plan for the Messiah's life, well, if that's the case, don't you expect that suffering might very likely be part of his plan for the followers of the Messiah as well? You're going to have to take up your cross as well if you're going to follow me. Four, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. In other words, so let's say you convince me, Jesus, to use my power and connection with the Heavenly Father to throw Rome out of Palestine and establish rule that makes us a great nation again. Then someday you die and you go straight to hell because I didn't do anything for your sin problem. That means you would save your life by getting the kind of cushy life you were looking for, hoping for, wanting for, longing for, but you wouldn't have your one real problem addressed, your sin problem. Whoever loses their life for me, losing their life there would be saying, losing your plans for life. Okay, right. That's the hardest thing sometimes to surrender to God is your agenda for life. Right? We hold them tightly. And the disciples did too. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, again, the gospel here means simply the came to take care of our sin problem. All we have to do is trust him, follow him, and we'll have what we seek. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world Again, this is a point at which, in your view of the Messiah, Jesus is going, you gain the whole world. 
Rome is kicked out. Israel rises to power. Because you happen to know the guy who's sitting on the throne pretty well, you get to rule with him. Okay? What good is it if you gain the whole world, yet you forfeit your soul? You don't get the answer to your real problem, which is a soul problem. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, what could you possibly lose through suffering and sacrifice that could even begin to compare with what you gain through the sacrifice I'm offering for you? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in the adulterous in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels again when it's saying ashamed of the son of man they were proudly walking around with Jesus they weren't ashamed of of him he was the great healer and teacher and all those things. What they were ashamed of was he kept saying this. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He'll be arrested and beaten and killed and on the third day rise again. Right? They were ashamed of that message. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a powerful message. That doesn't sound like a message that's going to get Rome out of Israel. But that's the message that could change their lives. Now, peek over one verse into chapter. It's kind of curious. And so he said to them, notice there's no break between. He's talking and he's continuing to talk. For for some reason, some genius person decided to end the 8th chapter and, and start the ninth on a different point. He said to them, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now, this is a curious statement because we sort of think that the kingdom of God doesn't really, in its fullness, come with power until Christ returns, and all of them died before Christ returned. So he's obviously not talking about the return of Christ. Uh, This verse is important because it introduces the next lesson, Uh, next week and next lesson uh, Jesus will take three of the disciples and he'll go up into a mountain with them and when he gets up on the mountain okay he is transfigured he looks entirely different okay he doesn't look like the Jesus they're walking around with and he doesn't look like the Jesus who's going to suffer and give his life and sacrifice he looks like a ruling king that nobody better cross Okay, he is the son of God. He looks like he does in heaven and they're just blown away. And then to add to that, Moses and Elijah appear with him to affirm this is the one that the law talked about would come. And this is the one the prophets proclaimed would come. Here he is. And then God, the father speaks from heaven. Can't get any more glorious than that and says, this is my son. Okay, great illustration and lesson for them when they get there and that's when they'll see the kingdom of God coming in power unfortunately as soon as they're done on the mountain they go down the mountain life goes back to normal Jesus goes to Jerusalem and in just days he'll be dead 
okay? But they get this little glimpse of the glory, but the glory comes through Christ's sacrifice, okay? Glory comes through the cross. <laughs> That's not part of their plan or agenda, but Jesus is saying, let me touch your eyes once again, take another look, okay? <laughs> this is really important. To his disciples in front of the entire crowd, Jesus makes himself absolutely clear. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny. What's it mean to deny? Say no. You ever say no to yourself? Say, ooh, I think I want to do that. Go like, no, that's probably not good for me. Right? That's what it means to deny yourself. Some people never deny themselves. And take up their cross and follow me. Not only is his mission non-negotiable, that is, if you want to accept him as Messiah, you have to accept him as a suffering Messiah. Those who follow him must walk the same path and pursue the same goal. As the mountain to experience to follow, as the mountain top experience, that's what's, there's a P missing there in the thing, at least on here, I don't know if it is on your notes, mountain top experience to follow would reveal Great things lie ahead, but only for those who carry the cross. Questions? Comments on tonight's lesson? Yes, Natalie. Okay. Because son of man was a term used in, used in the Old Testament that referred to the Messiah who would come. And so when he was saying son of man, that was just another title for Messiah. Did you recognize that? The why he's called son of man, son of God, is he was the completely God and completely human at the same time. Not half human, half God. Not 70% God, 30% human. He was fully human and fully God. So Son of Man and Son of God. But Son of Man was a title for the Messiah, which seemed to indicate what we now know in history was true, that the Messiah would be God in human flesh. But the average Jew in the first century did not know that, believe that, or even conceive of that. But they did know Son of Man was a title. Daniel, for instance, used it extensively to refer to the Messiah. I don't recall that he did, mostly the prophets. Pardon? The prophets, yeah. I said Daniel, but these also in some of the other prophets as well. Yes. She brought up That's Moses, which is funny because in Exodus three fourteen it says in the burning bush what God was talking to Moses. I am who I am. Right. Am I seeing any type of core, you know, um, relations here with maybe because Jesus said it quite a few times, I am He. Yeah. I am. He is when. There, 
when Jesus said that, he purposely used awkward language, it appears. We have, you have an English version of the Bible. You're at least three steps away from what was originally said. So sometimes a little bit gets lost in the, but it appears as we peel it back. I know uh, both Koine Greek and Aramaic that the New Testament's actually written in, but it was written in those languages. Not all the things that are written in Koine Greek in the New Testament were originally said in Koine Greek. They were written in Koine Greek because that was the language everybody spoke. But oftentimes, a larger portion of it was probably said, particularly in the Gospels, in Aramaic, which is a little bit of an extinct language. And, and uh, so um, you were asking about the I am. But it appears, as best we understand the structuring of the language, that Jesus awkwardly phrased when he said these things, and so like we'd say, well, I'm this or I'm that, we wouldn't go, I am this, I am that. <laughs> but he did because he was borrowing that, that all Jews understood that's the name of God. And when, when it says that, I don't know if you ever thought about that, it really means something really simple. It simply means, when God says, I am that I am, he's saying, like, what you see is what you get, and I don't change. I don't change for the circumstance, for the situation, okay? What you see, what you get, I am what I am. And when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the door to the sheep, I am all those statements, he's using actually that, now not in Hebrew, and that's in Hebrew in the Old Testament, in Moses' experience, but he's using the phraseology, which is the name of God, and that was one of the things that irritated the Pharisees, is that he did that. At one of their festivals, he said, I am the bread of life at, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they got real irritated by that because he used the actual name of God. I am. What? Did I get into it? Yeah. Yeah, those phraseologies are used. Well, son of God is also used to refer to angels in some places and, 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 and a number of things like that. Um, but the term son of man wasn't just a reference to, oh, you were born of a man, but it's a reference to the actual Messiah would bear that title. It's like a title. Like Messiah. Anybody else questions? Have a minute and a half left. Take a minute and a half question. Nobody. Okay. Next week we're going to be uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Oh, somebody raise your hand. Uh, night, minute question now. <laughs> Yes. From Genesis on, that was right. Right. Suffer. Right. 
Yeah, one of the most amazing, that's also in the Old Testament. But they didn't recognize any of it. Most of the suffering passages, they had interpreted in the first century to speak of their own suffering, Israel's suffering. Okay, not, but that's one of the curious things about Isaiah chapter 53. Actually, many people say the most graphic picture of the crucifixion of Christ isn't in the Gospels, it's in Isaiah chapter 53. And the curious thing about it is um, that that was written hundreds of years before the invention of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a Roman invention that they used for um, revolutionaries who were trying to overthrow the government because it both killed them and shamed them and hopefully ended any revolt. That was the purpose of it. Okay? And so um, in Isaiah chapter 53, it actually talks about him being pierced. You remember right? And those are things that, I mean, again, that was a, a characteristic of crucifixion that wasn't any form of execution that had led up to that point. Okay? And, and, and the further curious thing about that was that up until the 1940s, pretty universally, people thought that large portions of Isaiah was written after the time of Christ and had been plagiarized onto Isaiah because of that very fact that it's such a graphic, detailed description of something that historically happened in an era where it made no sense to talk about it in an era where that didn't exist. So, since we had no, we had no versions of Isaiah that dated back later, I mean, before, earlier, before the time of Christ, even conservative Christians sort of embraced that idea until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls um, in the desert in Cain, they found manuscripts that dated 500 years before the time of Christ that had Isaiah 53 in them. That was the oldest manuscripts that existed till that time. So yeah, that's what remarkable thing. In fact, most of the uh, the prophecies that are most remarkable about Christ all were related to the cross. I mean, he fulfilled all kinds of other prophecies too, but many of the other prophecies he fulfilled, he could have done on purpose. In other words, he could have said, well, the Old Testament says the Messiah is going to do this, I'm going to do this. But the ones that related to his birth, for one, and most of us don't have any control over where we're born, how we're born, where we go right after we're born. And then certainly, when you're hanging on a cross, you don't have any control over the stuff that happens. Those prophecies, just mounted up together, could only have been fulfilled by the Messiah. That was probably a longer answer than you wanted. Sorry, I got carried away. Yes. Had been prophesied, but listen, if you believe, it also is prophesied that he'll bring triumph and victory. And all, okay, so you're believing that because that's a nice story. I like that, particularly if I, you know, we're saying like America's going to rise to the power again. And, you know, it sort of sounds like Donald Trump, doesn't it? Yeah, forget about that. All right, but anyhow, how we say in that kind of thing, that's the message you're going to jump on, and then you're going like, yeah, but what about this about talking about him suffering? Oh, well, that's got to refer to something else. You're, you know, that's not what you're going to believe until it actually happens, and you see how God uses it. Yeah, right. 
I think most of what they knew was what was taught them by the teachers of the law. And that's what the teachers of the law were teaching. Okay. You know how we do it too. We teach the New Testament, but we skip over some parts. Go like, huh, don't know what that means. Think I'll skip over that. <laughs> and they did the same thing. All right, God bless you. Have a good night. Thanks, everybody.